I'd like to talk to you about the president's assets. Since by law, these must be reported accurately on his federal financial disclosures and when he submits them uh, for a bank loan. Uh, Mr. Cohen, you served for nearly a decade as then-businessman Trump's personal attorney and so-called fixer. Uh, did you have? Did you also have an understanding of the president's assets and how he valued those items? Yes. To your knowledge, did the president or his company ever inflate assets or revenues? Yes. And uh, was that done with the president's knowledge or direction? Everything was done with the knowledge and at the direction of Mr. Trump. This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa podcast. They're back, folks. And just when Donald Trump thought it was safe to show his face again in New York City, the Manhattan District Attorney has convened a second long-term grand jury to hear evidence about the Trump Organization's financial practices and vote on criminal charges. Developing legal news tonight, this is regarding that ongoing Trump I should say, ongoing probe into the Trump Organization in New York. Now, the Washington Post reporting something brand new, that the top prosecutor in Manhattan, the DA, Cy Vance, is convening a new grand jury, if that sounds familiar. Well, this is actually a second and separate grand jury in this Trump Organization probe. And the reporting suggests they are looking into potential lies about how the company valued its assets. An earlier grand jury convened this spring in Manhattan returned felony indictments against two Trump companies and Trump's longtime chief financial officer, Alan Weisselberg, charging them both with tax evasion. From the Washington Post reporting, it would appear that this is a different uh, line of, of sort of criminal investigation relating to something that Michael Cohen first put on blast, specifically this asset valuation issue. In plain English, whether you are lying about what you have to the degree that it becomes illegal. The second grand jury was expected to examine how the former president's company valued its assets. Staffers for District Attorney Cyrus Vance Jr. and New York Attorney General Letitia James were working together closely on this phase of the investigation. Prosecutors recently inquired about the initiation fees at Trump golf courses that they charged to new members, the person said, and Trump's role in setting those fees for individual customers. Trump often cited his club's initiation fees in the statements he sent potential lenders as a sign of the course's financial health. That appears to be a separate issue from the one described in indictments from the first grand jury, which has dealt with allegations that Weisselberg and other Trump executives evaded taxes on their pay by systematically hiding some of their compensation from the IRS. The problem that we keep running into, and I think the problem that we saw with the first grand jury, is that they had Alan Weisselberg dead to rights on tax evasion and the things that they charged him with. They seem to have had him, had him absolutely dead to rights, and in flip, Alan Weisselberg so far is willing to take all the weight for the for the dirt that the Trump organization did. And as long as Trump keeps finding these people who are willing to go to jail for him, or at least to risk going to jail for him, it's it's starting to get hard for me to see like when justice is done. The second grand jury's term indicates that it could outlast Vance who leaves office at year's end and extend into the term of his successor, 
Alvin Bragg. Do you believe that uh, this office, the DA, has the legal authority to indict an ex-president if warranted? Oh, so certainly. I, I actually haven't heard any colorable argument to the contrary, that we can't have a system uh, where anyone is above the law. All right, that is a bedrock principle of our entire judicial system. James said in a court filing last year that her office was investigating Trump's valuations of three properties, his Los Angeles golf course, a Manhattan office building, and an estate in suburban New York called Seven Springs. James Filing said she was interested in a conservation easement that Trump obtained on the Seven Springs property in 2015 giving him tax benefits in exchange for renouncing his right to build houses on part of the estate. Trump boosted the value of that tax break by estimating that the land would have been bought for $21 million had he sold it. Our investigation is based on the testimony of Michael Cohen. Michael Cohen testified before Congress, and we at the New York State Attorney General has broad investigatory powers over illegality and fraud. And what we are investigating is the fact that the Trump Organization inflated their assets, assets for the purposes of obtaining loans and insurance coverage and deflated their assets for the same assets for the purposes of avoiding and evading um, tax liability and or limiting it. And so our investigation will be ongoing. Um, and um, at this point in time, because it is um, an active investigation, um, I'm limited in all that I can say. James also indicated in the filing that she was interested in valuations of Trump's golf course in Los Angeles, where in 2014, Trump obtained a conservation easement that he said lowered the property value by 25 million. The filing said, James did not say why she was interested in Trump's office building at 40 Wall Street in Manhattan, though. Vance's investigation is aimed at criminal charges, while James's civil probe could end in a lawsuit. But James's office has also played a role in Vance's criminal investigation, sharing information and attorneys. James recently announced that she is running for governor of New York in 2022. As uh, we just said, State Attorney General Letitia James has officially entered the race for governor of New York. I've spent my career guided by a simple principle. Stand up to the powerful on behalf of the vulnerable. In case you've forgotten, I originated this line of inquiry with my testimony to Congress in 2019. Let's have a quick listen. It was my experience that Mr. Trump inflated his total assets when it served his purposes, such as trying to be listed amongst the wealthiest people in Forbes and deflated his assets to reduce his real estate taxes. You have provided the com this committee with copies of the president's financial statements or parts of them from 2011, 2012, and 13. Can you explain why you had these financial statements and what you used them for. So these financial statements were used by me uh, for two purposes. One was discussing with media, whether it was Forbes or other magazines, um, to demonstrate Mr. Trump's significant net worth. That was one function. Another was when we were dealing later on with insurance companies, we would provide them with these copies um, so that they would understand that the premium, which is based sometimes upon 
the individual's capabilities to pay um, would be reduced. The documents I cited were called statements of financial condition, which were prepared by Trump's accounting firm. These were write-ups of Trump's assets and debts, which were intended to prove his wealth and his good standing as a potential borrower. In many cases, these statements contain erroneous figures about Trump's properties and its values. For instance, Trump claimed his Virginia vineyard had 2,000 acres, when in fact it had about 1,200. He said Trump Tower had 68 stories. Bullshit! It is 58! In each case, these lies would allow Trump to borrow more money at lower interest rates than he would have been eligible. In addition, Trump added millions of dollars in value to some properties by claiming credit for homes he did not have permission to build. In 2011, for instance, Trump's statement said he had 55 home lots to sell at the Los Angeles golf course. Those lots would sell for three million or more, the statement said. But at that point, Trump had only 31 lots zoned and ready for sale at the course, according to city records. He appeared to claim credit for 24 lots and at least 72 million in future revenue, which he didn't have. We're doing homes at Trump National, and my first chore was to make the golf course really spectacular before I even thought about the homes. And then we ended up really with the best land, and that's where we're putting the homes. And the views, the elevation, the heights, the beauty, the location itself, and Palos Verdes, which is so terrific, make the homes, I think, the finest anywhere in the state. Trump also claimed that the Seven Springs was zoned for nine, or, in the later document, even 25 luxurious homes. The statements of financial condition said Trump included the sale price of those homes in his valuation of this property, concluding in 2011 that it was worth 261 million. I mean, seriously, folks, 261 million fucking dollars. But despite years of trying, Trump never completed the process required to build any homes on the property, according to local officials. Local assessor had valued the same property at 20 million. They purchased it in 1997 with this goal of developing it originally uh, to be a golf course, and, and that didn't work out because of local opposition to the course. And then uh, over time, they thought about subdividing it, and that's what uh, Mastro Monaco, the engineer, worked on, kind of helping them figure out um, how to get through the local town boards uh, subdividing the property so that they could build a bunch of other mansions on it and sell those mansions and that property. And that, that ultimately didn't work out also, again, because of local opposition. Uh, and so ultimately, they, and it's almost like they gave up on developing it and, and, and took this conservation easement um, as a way to at least recoup some money on it. So what does it all mean? It means that Trump fraudulently fucking overstated his wealth and is liable for prosecution. I still hold true that the clearest path to his prosecution lies in a Manhattan courtroom. The question for me is, why can't this be proven on the papers themselves? I mean, there seems to be a fairly significant record explaining that the use of conservation easements, for example, were used to take tax write-offs on properties that weren't actually valued that low. And so 
You still have a question about making out intent, but there's a pretty strong paper record, it would seem, that suggests that there was some devaluation going on for some purposes and an appreciation of the value of certain properties and others. And so it seems like there's a pretty good paper record here. And maybe that might be enough, certainly, to put some questions before a jury. But if you're, everything is going to turn on intent, then Ellie is exactly right. Um, you need someone who's going to turn tail the way that Michael Cohen did. Um, so more Michael Cohen's, fewer Weebays. These cases are open and shut. The DA and AG have enough fucking evidence to impanel 11 grand juries from now until the end of time. And with Letitia James announcing her run for governor of New York, she wants Trump as a pelt on her wall. Not to say these charges are politically motivated, just that it would make her run for governor all but assured if she were the one to take down Trump. They'd name a fucking bridge or a highway after her if she were able to put him away. That's how much Trump is loathed in New York City. Fuck you, you piece of shit, you little son of a bitch. You think you're just gonna get up in the morning and tweet out some bullshit? No one wants to hear it. No one wants to see it. Fuck Donald Trump. Meanwhile, in Washington, D.C., another judge is about to rule against Donald Trump as well. But this time it might not matter. The clock is ticking on the January 6th committee to deliver the goods before the midterm elections where a GOP victory could effectively shut down the inquiry before it's even started. With Donald Trump, there are always more shenanigans lurking around the corner. But he, I, I am hoping that the court has learned its lesson and will not be used by a nefarious litigant who wants to run out the clock. Who knows? He has no winning argument uh, on the merits. He has a losing argument, but he wants to delay, delay, delay until the narrative changes or the clock is run out. U.S. District Judge Tanya S. Chuckin appeared ready to side Thursday with Congress and the Biden White House against former President Donald Trump's efforts to block the release of hundreds of pages of White House records sought by a House committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. The judge indicated the power to assert executive privilege claimed by Trump to withhold the records from Congress ultimately rests with the current president, Joe Biden, who has waived privilege and approved their release. When a current and former president disagree, courts ought to defer to the incumbent, she suggested. Isn't the person who is best able and in a position to determine the executive privilege the executive? Chutkin asked in a two-hour oral argument in federal court in Washington. It's not a separation of powers fight with Congress. It may be a dispute between a former president and a current president, but there's only one executive, the judge continued. It's not a separation of powers fight. You know, she kicked through every argument Trump's lawyer, a guy named Justin Clark, made and she just dismantled his arguments. For example, he said, well, Your Honor, this is a dispute between the branches of government. Judge Chutkin said, no, excuse me, because the executive branch, as represented by President Biden, and the legislative branch, as represented by the House Select Committee, are in agreement that these materials should be turned over to the House Select Committee so we can get to the bottom of the Capitol attack. And she added, 
this may be, be one of the rare instances that the branches of government are actually in harmony. So what do you got next, Mr. Clark? The archives face a November 12th deadline to release a first batch of information, which Trump has asked Chuck into enjoying. Trump will appeal and the overall legal battle will continue well into next year, which will enable Trump to run out the clock until the November 2022 midterm elections. And that, my friends, is a bitter fucking pill to swallow. These documents contain multiple smoking guns capable of sinking Trump and his cronies. But once again, he'll be saved by the bell like a punch-drunk boxer who, despite taking multiple blows to the head, manages to stay on his fucking feet. God help us all. And now for the main event. My next guest on Mea Culpa is Tom Nichols. As this new Delta variant of MAGA leaders looks to take the country further to the right with what commentators have called Trumpism with a smile, Nichols is wondering how these people came to define the modern GOP and what he calls the assault from within. Nichols is a lifelong conservative turned never Trump Republican and the author of eight books, including the truly prescient Death of Expertise, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters. Published in 2017, the book foretold Trump's criminal bungling of the government's COVID-19 response as epitomized by his urging of Americans to drink bleach and sidelining of Dr. Anthony Fauci. Today, Nichols is a professor of national security affairs at the U.S. Naval War College, a columnist for USA Today, and a contributing writer at The Atlantic. His most recent book, Our Own Worst Enemy, The Assault from Within on Modern Democracy, is a blistering jeremiad of the spread of liberal and anti-democratic sentiment throughout our culture that places responsibility on the citizens themselves. How can we claim to value freedom, tolerance, and the rule of law, then elect these incompetent, inarticulate, and authoritarian politicians? The answer to these questions and much, much more in the next hour. So let's listen now to that conversation. Okay, Tom, a recent Rolling Stone report highlights the extent to which certain members of Congress openly aided the January 6th rioters before the insurrection. In addition, we have reams of information linking Trump to the organizing and incitement of January 6th. Now, in addition to that and to everything he did to overturn the election, this isn't conspiratorial thinking. It's all on paper. Still, it's not enough or it doesn't seem to be enough to prosecute these people for sedition and insurrection and prevent Trump from holding office. Personally, I just don't get it, right? What do you think is preventing Merrick Garland from making this happen and for the Justice Department to finally bring these people to justice? Well, you know, I, don't, I can't get inside Merrick Garland's head. And as you know, I'm not a lawyer, um, but I think uh, where Trump's concerned, there's a political question, right? That do you, you know, do you want to be seen prosecuting former presidents for their for for their political activity? Because we've already impeached the guy twice. Now, one possibility here is. My understanding is you don't actually have to be in office to be impeached yet again. 
and this time convicted and rendered, you know, incapable of holding any, any federal office. I think it would be a dicey take to see the Justice Department trying to prosecute a former president. But these members of Congress and their staffs, where they were, you know, talking, if Rolling Stone is right, where they're talking to all these people and basically organizing this and knowing, I mean, Mo Brooks showed up in, a, in, in body armor, for Christ's sake. Um, you know, they clearly knew something was up. Um, so I think that, you know, in that sense, I don't think the story's over yet. I don't think it's not that Garland's not prosecuting or this whole thing's a done deal. Um, but I, I am, I think the better question is, you know, how, how serious are the Democrats going to be on this one six committee and get things moving? I think you can't treat this as just another investigation where you're going to, you know, dither around forever with the lawyers and everybody's going to, you know, slow roll you into oblivion. And one day there will be a committee report and you put it on a library shelf. Um, I, I think they really have to treat this as they are looking into, you know, this this should be I agree with George Will. This ought to be treated like the 9-11 commission, um, you know, that yeah. this was an attack on the country and you want to find out who's responsible for it. You know, look, your statement is, you know, does Merrick Garland really want to prosecute a former president? And my answer is yes. Yes, we actually do. When that former president and these congressional members are involved in an insurrection, in a coup against our capital, against the people's house, against our fucking democracy. So the answer is an emphatic yes. And not only do I want him to, I personally believe he's fucking obligated to do it. I don't believe the Josh Hawley's of the world have the right or the Rudy Giuliani's have the right to stand up there or president, former President Trump have the right to stand up on a podium and tell people, I go to the go to the Capitol, I will see you there. I don't think that they have that right, especially when we have, as I say, you know, reams and reams of information showing that not only did they know that these people came there to do bad things, but they're the ones that incited it. So, yeah, I think Merrick Garland is obligated as the attorney general to do something. And if he's incapable or unwilling to do it, which, of course, is directly opposite of the fucking animal we had him before with Bill Barr, then he should get out. He should call up the president and say, I just can't do my job. I, I agree with you about everything, everybody around the former president. I think when you're talking about prosecuting a president, one of the things that I worry about is that, again, because you know this, he's the master of the slow roll. He will drag it out, turn it into a circus, um, use it as fodder uh, in his run. I, I would love to see. I mean, it's not going to happen in either case, I think, but I would love to see the Republicans put on the spot for yet a third impeachment to say, are you finally going to vote to convict this guy so he can never hold federal office again? Because that for a president is the remedy in our system. And then when he's out, as you say, if you want to go down the line and prosecute him uh, for, for um, uh, inciting violence, you know, that's going to take a long time. The immediate answer is, he he's he's unfit to be president. He's unfit to run again. And the only people that hold the keys to that um, are the Senate. And I, I they'll never convict him. But I would love to see the Republicans have to go on record one more time saying with everything we now know, with everything that's been done, all this testimony. Um, yes, we're still going to walk right out there on the Senate floor and defend this guy and carry his water one more time. But all, all the rest of these people. I mean, this is just straight up. A, I think, you know, again, as a non-lawyer, I think 
conspiracy uh, to to attack the government of the United States. And and um, I think and I can only guess that Garland is waiting um, on the one six committee so he doesn't get ahead of them. The problem is the one six committee is moving like molasses in January at this point. Uh, and so, you know, each of them is waiting for the other to move. But I, I agree with you, about, especially about people like, um, you know, Rudy and Brooks and the rest of them who clearly, I mean, they knew exactly what they were doing. Yeah, 100%. I mean, they sat there, Don Jr., the same thing, Marjorie Taylor Greene. It's, it's one thing when you have Don Jr., right? The son of the president at the time or the former guy who happens to just be fucking stupid, enjoying the spotlight, enjoying the fact that daddy, for the first time in his life, isn't shitting all over him. As I talk about in my book, Disloyal, right? Donald used to walk around and say to everyone that Don Jr. has the worst fucking judgment of anyone he's ever met. And he would say it, whether it's to the doorman, to his to his chauffeur, you know, to you name it, to anyone that walked in. Because in all fairness, Don Jr. does have the worst fucking judgment. And a lot of this came about when he was having the affair and then ultimately, you know, some of the business deals that he got, you know, um, himself into that his father either had to bail him out of or one of us had to bail him out of. He should not be permitted to incite an insurrection. Now we get to the bigger case. The people, and not, again, let's put Rudy Giuliani, who I consider to be an asshole as well, in the same bucket of shit as Don Jr. But let's talk about those that are elected officials. The people who swore to take an oath to defend the Constitution, to defend our democracy, that are there, not because that they're like um, the senators in old Rome, that these are people that are elected in order to do a job, not for themselves and not to ensure that their next election is properly and fully capitalized, you know, by, you know, riling people up, but rather to do the bidding of the people, the constituents to whom that they represent. And nobody can possibly tell me, I don't care, January 6th commission or anything thereafter, that these people were acting in a way that is in the interest of their of their constituents. I just don't get it. Yeah, they, I, you know, I'm a second time in a row. I'm going to name check uh, Will here, George Will here. But, you know, Will, Will has a great point that the Republicans are now a party that fear and hate their own constituents. That, you know, that the, the way that they stay ahead of this monster they've created with all this rage and all this anger is to constantly pump that rage up and then direct it at other people to deflect it away from themselves it, because now they're, they're riding the tiger and they don't know how to get off. Uh, and so they have these rallies, they put out all this crazy stuff. I mean, some of them genuinely, I mean, you know, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, I, I think, you know, you're just talking about emotionally disordered people, but these other guys, they know what they're doing. They created this kind of Frankenstein of this, this mob of rage junkies and they know that it could turn on them. So they're constantly pointing down the road and saying, go get those people, go get that guy, go get this guy, go, you know, storm that building. Um, and they don't know how to stop doing it at this point. And they don't care. They, they're, I think that I, I've been saying for a, a while now that the goal of elected Republicans is not to get eaten alive by their own constituents and to keep staying in Washington because they don't want to have to go home and live among the people that they have turned into, you know, these 
these enraged zombies. And so they'll say and they'll do anything. And they're aided in that by people in the conservative media who will say and do anything to keep eyeballs staring at Fox or listening to the radio uh, or whatever it takes. And, and, you know, at this point, they're all I mean, really, there is no responsible group of people left among them. They're all turning into Alex Jones. They're all turning into these, you know, whacked out, anger driven conspiracy theorists. So, you know, there's nothing I don't I, I mean, I don't know that there, when you say that you don't get it, Michael, I don't know there's much to get. I mean, it's self-preservation um, and staying in D.C. and staying far away from, you know, the communities that they're supposed to be representing at this point. They're certainly not helping anyone. Let's put it that way. They're not they're not getting anything done for. I mean, Green walks around and basically is proud of the fact she's not on any committees, doesn't pass any legislation. You know, Cawthorn and the rest of these guys, they couldn't care less about fixing a pothole in North Carolina or Georgia. They don't care about fixing a bridge. They don't care about helping their constituents. They're there. They think of themselves as, you know, circus performers. They're there to be national performers on the national stage. And the fact that they happen to represent districts of people who desperately need their help in Congress is just irrelevant to them. They couldn't think they don't give a shit about any of those people. Well, it's a real problem. And then we're countered by a secondary problem. Let me give you an example. Right. So Adam Schiff went on television. He also went before the press vowing a speedy and aggressive probe of the January 6th assault. Now, of course, you know, uh, Representative Schiff, you know, is um, on the uh, select the House Select Committee investigating and so on. And he went out there and he publicly stated that we are going to push this January 6th um, committee and the investigation expeditiously. Well, I understand that makes for great fodder on television and it looks real impressive and real tough. You know, when you're reading it as a headline in one of the articles that, you know, they gave this statement to. But here's the facts. The facts are that the Republicans, especially how Donald Trump has taught them the Trump playbook, something that sadly I helped to create many years ago, you know, with him in order to fend off these sorts of inquiries and litigation is a stall tactic. And it will always be. So what's the first stall tactic? Don't show up. Don't show up. All right. And so now it's not about the January 6th insurrection. It's not about the number of people that stormed the Capitol. It's not about the brave D.C. police officers, the Capitol police officers that died, were injured, hurt, maimed, etc. It's not about them. It's about Steve Bannon, this fucking goofball and a half who's basically playing to a party of one because it's doing it's doing wonders for his radio show. Um, you know, which, again, as you were talking about conservative media is really significant out there. You know, you start to look like even on Apple podcasts, I'm like top three percent of all Apple podcasts and news. But the ones that beat me out for the most part, it's all conservative for some unknown reason. Progressives and liberals, they're not really as much into listening to whether it's podcasts or radio. Look at Sean Hannity, for example, with his with his radio show and his television program. Look at Tucker Carlson, the same shit. These people are, I don't know whether they work or not. That may be the problem. Well, I was going to say, 
They have they have is, so much audiences, people who have the time on their hands. I mean, if you wonder, for example, one of the things um, back years ago, when I was writing a book called The Death of Expertise and you know, trying to figure out why, you know, people are, you know, you know, who's likely to be kind of taken in by these Facebook rabbit holes. They tend to be people, I'm sorry to say, you know, closer to my age. Right. I mean, I'm 60. Um, people that are 55, 60, 65 years old that are retired or semi-retired who just have hours and hours to sit there listening to talk radio or jumping down rabbit. I mean, you know, why, why isn't this a bigger audience among younger people or among, you know, people on the left? Um, you know, they have, they have stuff to do. Um, whereas if, I mean, I always tell people when I point out about the loyal, you know, Fox evening viewership, I'm paid to have opinions. People pay me to write my opinions. And even I don't watch four straight hours of cable news at night, you know, I mean, but there are people every night, they start their night with Tucker, they sit there straight through to Ingraham, you know, because the, what else are they going to do? And by the time they're done with two or three or four hours of that, they're, they're psychotic, they're, they're rage filled, um, because they've been living in this alternate universe. And I think the the dilemma that you're talking about for a lot of these Republican politicians is, you know, again, they've, it's it's created loyalty to the Republican brand. These people will vote for anything with an R next to its name, um, you know, unless it's Liz Cheney or Adam Kinzinger, and they who they identify as apostates. Um, but it also means that that mob constantly needs new, you know, they're like junkies that need a bigger hit. Um, they need new targets to go after, and so you're always trying to up the, the voltage to stay one ahead, one step ahead of these these crazy mobs. Um, that you're creating in in these evenings, and so they, you know, this this is just rage that has to be directed somewhere. Um, to your point about the the playbook, you know, it's really amazing, and I think you're right. The Democrats are viewing this as yes, we're going to move expeditiously in in the sense of we're going to treat this like a really important thing within normal congressional business. And the Democrats are driving me absolutely bonkers about this because they need to be treating this like a national emergency. They need to be treating this like an existential crisis. And instead, as my um, my friend Molly Jongfast says, you know, democracy is hanging by a thread and they're arguing about free eyeglasses and, and you know, getting into pissing matches with each other on, on infrastructure bills and, um, you know, arguing with President Biden. They need to treat this like a, a serious emergency, an existential emergency. And I just don't see that happen. And that that plays right into guys like Bannon who say, yeah, you know, here's here's my answer. Fuck you. I'm not showing up. And, and you know, our system, you know, this, as you said, you were you helped to create it. Our system isn't built to handle people who simply turn to the Congress of the United States and say, screw you. And that's exactly what Donald Trump taught them to do. That's the Donald Trump playbook. And what he did is he slowly and methodically moved that red line in the sand a little north and then a little farther north and a little farther north. And then you have these copycats, you know, scumbags doing the same thing off to the left. Right. And ultimately what happens is you've basically now destroyed our democracy. You've basically given these individuals like a Steve Bannon, right, the ability, Mark Meadows, Cash Patel, Dan Jerkoff Scavino, you've given them the ability to turn around and take these uh, subpoenas and say, you know what? Yeah, fuck you. I'm not showing up. Do whatever you, there's nothing that you can do. Do whatever you and, want. And part of the, 
part of the way they play that on the other side is to say, I'm going to completely ignore the law. The rule of law doesn't apply to me. But when you come after me, I'm going to insist that you do everything by the book. Um, the rule of law must apply to you. You must do this, you know, by the book. And I, I actually, you know, as painful as it is to say that, if you believe in the rule of law and the Constitution, you do have to go by the book. You do have to follow the law. But they count on it. They count on you being bound by the law and them not being bound by the law. Because, again, our system wasn't designed to cope with people who simply say, I don't recognize any kind of rule of law. I don't recognize any constitutional norms. If the con Congress, I mean, we've had time, people in the past, the Congress subpoenas you, they walk in, they say, I'm here. I've answered your lawful, lawful subpoena and I'm not going to talk to you. I'm not going to, I'm going to take the fifth amendment or I'm going to talk to my lawyer, but, I'm, but I have recognized your right to call me before this body. This is a new thing of saying the Congress of the United States, the article one power under the constitution has no power. They don't exist. Tom, real. you Tom, all of a sudden you have a CNN, MSNBC, Fox, ABC, NBC. You have their cameras facing onto the chair with the name of the individual sitting in front. <laughs> and then there's a fucking no show. And then, of course, you have guys like Adam Schiff who come out and make these bold statements about how we're going to expeditiously, you know, um, prosecute or investigate into this January 6th uh, insurrection. Talking about, for example, going back to like Woodward and Costa's book where they talk about, you know, that there was this gathering at the Willard Hotel the night before, which included Steve Bannon. Right. Included Rudy Giuliani, included Mike Flynn and this guy, John Eastman. And all of a sudden you start asking these people to show up. Now, Rudy's in a whole different bind of bullshit because he's in some serious trouble after the raid, the indictment and so on. Bannon, who's just defiant as all hell. Why? Because it's good business for him. You understand? It's great business. It gives him fodder to talk about on his radio show. It gives him the ability to turn around and to say, whoa, whoa, guys, right? We're the ones being affected. And they're very good at using the we, right? So he's now reaching out to all of these conservatives. We're the ones that are being affected. All we're trying to do is to rightfully replace Donald Trump as the president of the United States, because the Democrats stole the election from him, that Joe Biden is an illegitimate president, et cetera, et cetera. Now, that in and of itself is significantly destructive to the continuation of our country as we know it. And that's the existential crisis that you're referring to. And, and it's being enabled by, you know, I'm sorry to say, but I think, you know, when our democracy malfunctions, it, you can only blame Steve Bannon up to a point because the people that are enabling this are people right. who listen to him and don't hold him to account. I mean, it is remarkable. Now, you and I are sitting here, you know, you were involved with, with Trump for a long time. You've stepped forward. You've owned a lot of the stuff you did. You've been straight up about it. You know, you've you've said all this stuff. Bannon rips these people off for a wall. Right. Pockets the money. Trump um, uh, pardons him. And then he steps forward and says, here I am back again to, you know, keep talking to you like his the the very people that he's fleeced will never hold him to account, which is how these guys keep coming back and getting a second and third and fourth bite from the apple, because the people they're talking to are so um they're so marinated in their own blind anger that they, it doesn't occur to them that the Steve Bannon they're listening to right now is the Steve Bannon who just ripped them off a year ago. 
Tom, is it any different than all of these supporters, these sycophantic followers that are pouring their hard-earned money or their, their government stimulus money to Donald Trump? After, after reports came out that stated that he had to return like $150 million of overcharging his own supporters. And what did they do thereafter? Boom. They're they right, right back, back into him. Right back <laughs> into him. I, well, I, I never understood this one. But during the election, when Trump, you know, when the Trump guys were saying, well, I trust him because he doesn't need anybody's money. He's bringing his own money. He's a billionaire. And I'm like, He's literally hitting you up for 25 bucks at a time in fundraising letters. He, he's sending you texts. You're sending you are literally sending money to a billionaire. And I think, you know, there is just I think people have gotten to the point where they're just not capable of experiencing any cognitive dissonance that they just say, you know, yeah, I get it. But I, I hate the people I hate so much that I'm not capable of rational thought or logical extension of, of a of an idea here. And it's like, yeah, I know I said that he's rich and would never ask me for money, but I'm going to write him a check anyway, because none of this makes sense. And I just hate everybody on the other side. In fact, not only, uh, you know, it does that as a notion, not make any sense, right? The guy's a billionaire, allegedly, the guy's allegedly, not, the guy's <laughs> not hitting you up for money, but I'm going to send it anyway. That just doesn't make any sense. First of all, I give you an example. Like my parents somehow got uh, onto this Republican uh, donor list, right, for Trump. Most probably because when he was running in 2016, they probably sent some money in because of my involvement I with get, Trump. I wait, get wait, those texts, and I have no idea why. Well, it's not that you get the text once a day, once every other day, and so on. I'm talking about 25 25 a day wow. and the problem is you wow. can't get it off your you can't get it off your text message it just keeps coming through even if you write stop or unsubscribe it doesn't make a difference because it they just wear you down and then they don't really care because we're, we we know that a percentage whether it's 1%, 5%, will turn around and send in that $25 now, then there's a smaller percentage that'll send in 50 a small this this guy has raised, <laughs> it was about 100, what was it, $200 million and so on. And then they decided that what we're going to do is we're going to put in a little clause there that every month it's a repetitive gift unless you opt out. The problem is you can't find the opt out button. So this is who we're dealing with. But Tom, I want to talk, I want to just go back to this whole issue about the rage that's going on because I'm curious and I asked this of my past guests as well, but I'd like to get your perspective on it. I'm curious if you saw the CNN report from earlier this week that describes the myriad of death threats and intimidation that's directed at election workers and secretaries of states across the country. Because some want to dismiss this as the act of lone wolves and lunatics. But at some point when it's happening in the most contested states like Georgia, Arizona, Michigan, you start to wonder if it's an organized and a concerted effort. Now, we already know that Steve Bannon was pushing for the GOP to essentially take over these jobs and become precinct captains and poll watchers. Is this just another tactic of the far right that people aren't talking about or are just blind to? You know, victory through fear and intimidation. What's your thoughts on this? I think there's two things going on. One is there's definitely an organized campaign. I mean, it, it, it you, you know, it's not just an accident that suddenly 
um, you know, violent kooks are showing up or threateningly violent kooks are showing up at school board meetings all across the country all at the same time. I mean, that is, uh, you know, that's clearly people that have, you know, I mean, because we didn't see this for five years. We didn't see people show up to school board meetings. And all of a sudden we have a month or two of everybody showing up at school board meetings. I also think, again, it's part of that kind of unfocused um, rage that these that conservative media creates in people uh, that, you know, tells them your school board is, you know, fascism. It's uh, there are a bunch of Nazis and you have to go down there. I think the goal, the long term goal for for the people pushing this, people like Bannon and others who you know love this kind of stuff, it's to clear the benches of decent people who are willing to participate in local politics. Because then you can put kooks into those positions, and then you really—that's the future bench for electing people to state legislatures, for electing people to Congress, for filling out you know the ranks of the government. Um, because you've basically driven out decent people who say, you know. Nobody gets rich being on a school committee. Um, that's just an, that's a that's a civic duty. It's an investment of time. And finally, people say, you know what? I don't need this shit in my life. I'm going home. Fine. You know, um, I'll put my kids in private school, or my kids aren't going to be in school anymore, and they're they're aging out. And I think it is an attempt to intimidate people out of the public square. I think it's really remarkable when you talk about rage, Michael, that um, how it's become almost a a kind of a feature of American public life that anyone who speaks up gets threats. I mean, it's just something that we used to think of as really unusual. Um, and now it's it's almost like it just goes with the territory that if you're on television or you write or you run for office or you have a you go on the radio or a podcast like you do, people just decide that they'll they'll send threatening letters i mean it's almost like um it, it's more it's more than just tom threatening letters they're stalking these people and their family and you are right it is a civic it is a civic duty that these people are performing and it's one that's of course essential to the continuation of our democracy and the electoral process and so on i wouldn't want to do it when you know that there are going to be people there that are going to surround your car intimidate you they're going to call your house they're going to throw bricks through your window they're going to start to stalk your what your spouse or your children why would anybody want to do this and 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 for what i mean you know it's not even like this is you know you're a member of congress and you're voting on something extremely controversial um you know it's i mean we've seen people attacking politicians in the past over things in foreign policy or you know medical care this is about what? About whether your kids have to wear a mask in sixth grade for four more months? Um, you know, p- you're threatening people's lives over, uh, you know, whether or not they, they have to, whether or not a fifth grader has to wear a mask in class. What's, what really is revealing about this is when you find out that some of these people, you know, it's, it's kind of not funny, but it is. It's like the mean girls thing where, you know, you, find, you turn to this guy and you find out he doesn't even go here. You know, oh, like, that's great. That's great from mean he, girls. I love that scene. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't have kids. He doesn't he doesn't even live in this district. It's like this. You know, these guys, some of these guys, like their hobby to go to a school committee meeting and threaten people. And then you say, well, where do your kids go to school? And they're like, well, I don't have kids. Well, what are, you, what are you doing here? You know, where do you live? Why are you doing this? And it's because they are sitting there 
just taking in these violent messages and just they're get, letting their brains get completely spongified from all this propaganda. And they have to go and let it out somewhere. And they have to go to these meetings and stand up and, you know, make a scene and, and show people that they that they exist. And I think um, I think a lot of these folks, I, I shouldn't say a lot of them. I'm hoping that many of them will have a moment like some of the one six guys do. There was a it's really interesting to kind of read these interviews with some of the people that were less arrested after January 6th, where they say, you know, I, I, I believed a lot of bullshit. I was taken in. I don't know what the hell I was thinking. I don't know why I did this. Um, I would hope that some of these folks would think about the fact. What kind of person have you become that you go to a school board meeting and tell some, you know, middle aged school committee person I'm going to hurt your children. I'm going to kill the your same wife. What type the hell of person, is wrong with you? The same type of person, i.e. former President Donald Trump, that's at a rally and turns around and tells people in the audience to kick the guy's ass if he does anything, yeah. and I'll pay for your legal fee. The same type of an asshole that watches Ted Cruz go before um, the, the hearing with Merrick Garland and this is another thing that drives me absolutely bonkers. The fact that you take Fox News' reporting of Ted Cruz um, and his sparring with Merrick Garland. Fox News calls it Ted Cruz hammers Merrick Garland right over this um, abusive memo instructing the DOJ's involvement in local school boards. Then again, you go to all the others, whether it's CNN, Ted Cruz defends you know, parents' use of Nazi salute. Which one of those two accurately depicts what went on there? Ted Cruz didn't hammer Merrick Garland. By the way, Ted Cruz's job is not number one to hammer, you know, um, Merrick Garland over this. This is uh, this was about individuals who were abusing, intimidating, threatening with vile language and behavior people who are on school boards. And it's not just about masks. It's also about critical race theory and a series of other things that are scaring these individuals who believe in white privilege um, into joining this crazy cult of Trumpism. That's legitimately what's going on here. I mean, the notion that Ted Cruz can defend a parent's use of not of a Nazi salute and claim, well, isn't the Nazi salute then a form of free speech? Um, hey, Ted, would, if you're listening, fuck you. It, 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 it is a form of free speech, but what a hell to die on. I mean, you know, what a what a way to signal what what you believe in uh, by by choosing that hill to die on. And I think, you know, when you talk about Fox News, Every time I see this stuff, and I do, occasionally I will just sit because I care. I'm a political scientist. I care what other people are watching. I'm interested to know what my fellow citizens are getting, you know, uh, pumped into their heads. Uh, and I, I sometimes wonder, what is the end game here? What is your point? Is it just to get get back, claw back the audience that has moved to Newsmax or OAN? Um, you know, is that all this is about or is it? I mean, at some point, you start asking yourself, does Tucker Carlson really believe his own bullshit? Or does, does he understand what he's creating? Does he care? Um, you know, on a very personal level, the way it was described, someone who worked at Fox once many years ago described it this way to me. They said, Sean Hannity's too stupid to know what he's talking about. Um, Tucker Carlson knows exactly what he's doing, and he's gaining an audience. 
And uh, Laura Ingraham is somebody you wouldn't want in your house. <laughs> the way it was the evening lineup, the way it was described. But at some point, even if you're just, even if you're just doing this kabuki and you're trying to suck people in, at some point you start to become that thing, you know, that when you start defending this stuff and pushing this stuff, you start internalizing it. You say it enough times out loud, you become the thing you think you're, you're just um, pretending to be. And I, I don't see how this ends for them. And I know they've lost people. I know I have friends who, you know, that I've unfortunately have lost to this cult who have said, well, I only watch OAN. I only watch Newsman. They literally, literally have said to me, Fox is too liberal. Now think about how far down the rabbit hole you've gone when you think Fox is too liberal. I mean, this is this is a cult. This is a tree that people are not going to be able to climb down up. Making content is an essential part of what I do to keep the show going. But it hasn't always been a seamless creative process. Much of my day involves keeping all of you up to date with what's happening politically. To do so, I'm creating memes, videos, and all manner of material for people to enjoy. Creating it takes hours and hours as I source the pictures and design the social assets. Or at least it used to. Ever since I found Canva Pro, I can design anything like a pro on any device. Canva Pro is a design platform that empowers you to create and share stunning content in just a few clicks. Designing with Canva Pro is amazingly fast and fun. Choose from thousands of templates that are easy to customize or just start from scratch. Canva Pro has endless premium fonts, photos, videos, and so much more that add personality and edge to whatever you're designing. Their library of tools and imagery is endless with features even an old dude like me can use to create fantastic looking social content. Plus, no more paying for pictures, fonts, or filters. With Canva Pro, it's all one price. Designing together has never been easier. Sharing, editing, and commenting in real time. Canva Pro helps you stay organized, on the same page, and on top of team projects. No more misplaced files or tedious back and forth. Plus, you and four teammates can unlock everything Canva Pro has to offer for just $12.99 a month. With Canva Pro's Content Planner, you'll save time planning, creating, and posting social media content too. Pause schedule posts and edit them at any time. So design like a pro with Canva Pro. Right now, you can get a free 45-day extended trial when you use my promo code. So just go to canva.me slash Cohen to get your free 45-day extended trial. That's canva.me slash Cohen. That's C-A-N-V-A dot M-E slash Cohen. So go to canva.me slash Cohen. Yeah, well, you know what? Let's stay on Fox and Tucker Carlson for a second, because you retweeted a post today from Tim Miller about Fox News allowing Tucker Carlson to use its airways to discuss how January 6th was a false flag operation. Now, in addition, they're hosting one of the main architects of Stop the Steal, Ali Akbar, for this January 6th special. I'd say that Fox cannot sink any lower, right? They are really in the dumpster of shit, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of what they're doing. But we know that, that that's not true, right? 
But how can they with a straight face claim that this is remotely okay to put on air, right? My guest, um, Alex Howard, believes it's a form of uh, stochastic terrorism on the level of the infamous hate film at the Ellipse that was played just before the riot on January 6th. If you would, unpack this for me. What's going on here? Yeah, I, I've never been comfortable with that term stochastic terrorism um, simply because it's almost too clever. I mean, I I, I almost think that um, they don't really the, the guys at Fox don't really care um, as long as they're getting the eyeballs and the viewership and that each of these hosts has the kind of cult following that they care about. I think that's part of it is that they just have decided I have people who follow me, who listen to me, and I don't really care what the consequences are. Um, I, I I don't I guess this is, you know, it's pretty unusual to, to for me to wonder about well, what really are the motivations of people, you know, in in the media or public life, because nine times out of 10, I think mostly they're just doing their job. But this is a case where especially with this um, this this Tucker Carlson special that he's that he's been flogging for the past few days that he's going to debut soon. Um, this is really dangerous. I mean, people could get hurt from this. And, he, and I just kind of wonder on a personal level, what have what have these people become? Um, you know, years ago, David, David Frum pointed out that um, the late Christopher Hitchens kind of knew this when he turned to um, he knew Tucker Carlson. And he basically said, you shouldn't go on TV. It's toxic for you. It's too tempting. Um, you know, and, and so someone saw this coming. But I still find it hard to believe with him or anybody else and with all these people who make these accusations and the kind of people who go to these school board meetings and make these threats, I always want to say to them, you were raised better than this. You, you were not brought up this way in this country. You know, what, how did you become this way that in the past five or 10 years, you've literally become willing to, to threaten your fellow citizens almost as a routine exercise of your political speech? Um, and I think in part, it's because they see it in public figures like guys like Carlson, who who sit there and and you know say it on national television and they make it okay to do that and I think that's partly um, how we're collapsing our norms, collapsing our constitutional and civic culture is that you have um, intellectual um, not what am I saying intellectual you have entertainment leaders who are basically going out and saying it's okay to feel this way it's okay to talk this way it's okay to believe these completely crazy ass things. And it's, it's okay. You notice though, Michael, that when they get really close to the edge, like uh, this, they did the other night with this guy with Charlie Kirk, when it gets right to the edge of violence and they pull back and say, no, I'm not saying you should do that. Right. They lead them right to the edge of it, but then right. they're smart enough to step back and say, no, I wouldn't have told you to do that. Now that's the exact definition of stochastic terrorism. It's the exact definition that this rhetoric, while hostile or hateful, does not explicitly tell someone to carry out an act of violence against that group. But a person feeling threatened is motivated to do so as a result. And that's exactly what they're doing. Now, Tucker Carlson didn't become the Tucker Carlson he is today on his own. He became bigger because of Donald Trump. It's a fact. Donald Trump has been using this stochastic sort of methodology for a long, long time. And how do I say that? Why do I say that? It is clear, and everybody knows it, that Trump acts like a mob boss. 
And what does a mob oh, boss yeah. do? They give orders without actually saying the order. That's the way that Trump acts. That's the way he behaves. You're never going to catch Donald with an email or an order that's written because he doesn't have email. That's something that the, you know, that the infamous Roy Cohn taught him a long time ago. The less that you have in writing, the better off that you shall be. Well, that's what he did. But I totally believe that Alex, um, you know, Howard is correct when he says that's what's going on here. This is stochastic terrorism where they're learning it from the best, this narcissistic sociopath that is really fucked up in his head, right? That legitimately does not want to be president of the United States. He wants to be our supreme leader. He wants to be the Vladimir Putin of America. And he is willing to burn down the fucking Capitol in order to do it. And it was demonstrated by the acts of people. They'll say, I never told them. I just said, no, I'll, see you. I'll see you at the Capitol. I didn't tell right. them to storm it. I didn't tell them to wipe feces all over the place. I didn't tell them to steal um, Nancy Pelosi's computer or, you know, sit there. He, that's his argument. It's the argument almost of like of a five-year-old, right? Where, you know, you do something and you say, but that's not exactly what I did, right? No, no, it's exactly what you did. And we as adults in the room know exactly what he was up to. It's interesting that the people around him and the people who are enabling him and the cheerleaders out there like Carlson, um, they've also somehow decided that they personally are better off in a country that is in chaos. That their, that their self-interest is better served by a country that is completely imploding and at war with itself. And I think that's something else we've just never really encountered before. You know, we've never really encountered a, a national political movement that I mean, we've had bad we've had bad guys on the loose before. We've had, on, you know, we've had the weathermen out there planting bombs in the 1970s. We had, you know, McCarthy out there call, calling everybody communists and trying to ruin their lives. Of course, a Roy Cohn protege, as you well know, um, you know, but we've never had a whole political movement that says, you know, what would be really good for me personally is if the country just starts to burn. Not not even in the sense of I can take over and have power or I can get through policies that I want or I can run things the way I want. But basically, if the country burns, people will tune into me every night and listen to things I say and send me money. I mean, it is really remarkable that a bunch of incredibly mediocre people, people of really meager talents, you know, the Charlie Kirks and Candace Owenses of the world have decided you know, if I just like freak people out and scare them, they'll send me money and I never have to get a straight job in my life. Um, you know, my job at 25 years old can be just scaring the shit out of people and they'll send me checks. Well, that's a very powerful thing when you create a whole bunch of people who have access to social media and microphones and podcasts and television shows saying my business model is that I never have to go get an actual fucking job if I can just keep people terrified and angry. And that, I think, is, again, something that the, that the U.S. Constitution and our system of government never envisioned. Like, we never envisioned having an entire class of people who think their only job is to constantly just, like, walk around with gasoline and light political fires all over the place. 
And I don't think, I, I don't know how this ends. I don't know how we come out of it. That's because we have the internet now and we have, you know, Facebook and Instagram and all these other, you know, platforms where people make money by being, you know, um, by the number of followers that they have and being influencers. You brought up Charlie Kirk, which sort of brings me to a question that I had on my mind. On Monday at a Turning Point USA conference in Idaho, hosted by that douchebag Charlie Kirk, a young man asked him, when do we get to use the guns and start killing these people? The Washington Post believes that the longer the big lie persists and people believe this election was stolen, that the inevitable result will be this kind of violence, that people are going to get killed. Discuss this with me. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, Michael, you pointed out, you said, well, we have the internet and the ability to do this. But the other part of that equation is you now have enough people who are so completely vile that they are willing to do this, that they are willing to encourage this as a business model. You know, the thing about Joe McCarthy is there was really only one Joe McCarthy. And that in the end, after a few years of this, there were millions of decent people in America who said, you know what, we're just not, we're not putting up with this. We're not going to deal with this anymore. Um, you know, you didn't have a hundred Joe McCarthy's flooding the airwaves because there just weren't that many people who were that spiritually and morally bankrupt who were willing to do it. And that this is what happens when you get to that point that somebody finally stands up and says, you know what? I believe you. You have convinced me. So now we have to go kill people. Of course, it never occurs to any of these folks. And I mean, I, I felt, you know, in a strange way, I kind of felt bad for the guy that was asking that question is I thought, you really believe that local election officials in Wisconsin and Nebraska and Minnesota and Alabama and, you know, New Hampshire, that all these people who volunteer their time as your fellow citizens to sit around doing this incredibly boring stuff of counting ballots and sealing them and transmitting them to the, you know, to the state capitol in Concord or Augusta or, you know, uh, Carson City or wherever, that, that these people are actually sitting around saying, I'm going to steal this election from my fellow citizens. It's insane. And then you say things like, when do we start shooting people? Who? You're, you're going to open fire on your fellow citizens, people counting votes, volunteers in your own community? Um, what, who? Police officers? What? It's, it's this. And of course, Kirk right away backpedals. Now, now, wait a minute. You know, again, it says, you, you know, you were pointing out a minute ago. No, I never said to do that. Um, but of course, you constantly lead people to this point where they logically expect that there has to be some next step because you've sold them on this immense conspiracy. And I think that, you know, it is really remarkable to me that there is not just one Joe McCarthy or one, you know, like like one Joe McCarthy. There's not just one Charlie Kirk. There's a hundred of these guys. They're, they're all loose on talk radio. They're all running around the country and they're all competing with each other to vacuum the pockets of gullible people by constantly upping the ante on each other. Oh, that guy told you there's a conspiracy. I'll tell you there's a bigger conspiracy. Uh, that guy told you that something terrible happened. I'll tell you something even worse happened. And, and it becomes it becomes a competition to keep people constantly terrified and freaked out. And, and of course, it's going to lead to tragedy. It already has led to tragedy. I mean, we're, we're three years out from the from the synagogue shooting. Um, we're four years out from the El Paso shooting. We've already had a bunch of tragedies that have been inspired by this kind of thinking. 
Uh, I can't help but think there are going to be more of them. Yeah, look, you know as well as anybody, Tom, because you're a logical, clear-headed thinker, that you cannot convince anyone, all right? You cannot convince people of anything today. Everybody's on one side or the other. Either you are a pro-Trump supporter or you are an anti-Trump supporter, right? Just take a look, for example, this whole concept of QAnon, right? This belief that this pedophile, that the Democrats are a bunch of pedophile, murdering, you know, death cult and so on, simply created by some unknown individual. And, so on. and there are these people that are running around with the Q flag. It's, it's become a reality, a reality based off of somebody's lie, off of some wacky conspiracy theory that somebody created. And then people like a Marjorie Taylor Greene continue to promote this theory. And these are the people as well that ended up like the Oath Keepers and the, you know, the, the rest of these, you know, these groups that the scary thing is that what happens, like what happened at the Capitol next time when they actually become more organized and they become more intertwined with each other, right? You know, the QAnon folks with the Oath Keepers and the various other right-wing sort of um, cults that will use any means necessary to get what they want. And I do fear, I fear all the time that these folks are out there, they're dangerous, they're armed, they're willing to use it. And I give a lot of credit to our incredible law enforcement. I talk about them all the time on Mea Culpa here. Uh, our FBI, all of our law enforcement agencies, our police, local, state, and, you know, and so on. Um, the great job that they're obviously doing to keep us safe because these people are not sitting, you know, in their in their double wides with their thumbs up their ass. They are not. Yeah, uh, and, and you know the the inability to. I mean, let me let's just um, just to point out how widespread this inability to comprehend reality is. I mean, it, there are people on the left who are not immune to this. I mean, I've had arguments with people. I mean, you know, I'm a Russia expert by training, and I've had people say to me, "Well." You know, the, in 2016, the Russians changed voting machines. They just did. And I'm like, OK, that didn't happen. You know, and in the same way that you can't talk people out of the 2020 conspiracies back then, I literally was talking to people. And I said, you can't this. This simply didn't. The thing you believe happened didn't happen. And they and they they just look at you and say, I don't care. I believe it. And that's the end of the, the discussion. Um, the, this point you're making about the second time around, you know, it, it strikes me, I keep thinking of, of McVeigh in Oklahoma City. It, it's, it will be more organized and more violent. But again, there is no, imagine if they, that, that the, on one six, that everybody flooded in there and disrupted Congress and killed some people and stopped the, the election, uh, the electoral vote from being counted. It's, it, it wasn't going to change anything. I mean, Joe Biden still eventually, you know, the Capitol be retaken, people be arrested, Joe Biden still be president. I, I think one of the things that's really upsetting about this is, that it's this kind of unfocused lashing out at in every direction um, at the government, at fellow citizens, at people in your community at anybody in public life. I mean, it really is a it is just a kind of, you know, get out there and get even with everybody that you think you hate. And, and again, it's being encouraged by people who don't really I, I mean, I think this, it's almost scarier to say that they don't have a program, that all they care about is chaos 
And and that leads to uh, votes to stay in office. You know, the same people who think the election was stolen from Donald Trump, you know this, Michael, they are very protective of saying their own election was completely legitimate, right? They're all big on election fraud, unless you say, well, if all the, if the whole election was fraudulent, how about how about your election? No, no, that was totally fair. Um, so they're, they're out there to harvest votes. They're out there to harvest money. And the people in the media ecosystem are there to harvest eyeballs and clicks and and subscriptions. And, it, it, it you know, it is really there is no bottom to I don't think we've seen the bottom to this. You, you said the, a minute ago that you think Fox has really reached the bottom of this dumpster of shit. I don't I don't think they have at all. I think I said on Twitter earlier today, the Fox evening lineup has become an Alex Jones tribute band. And I think there's still room under the pedal for them to sink even lower. And I think they will sink. Well, let me ask you this. In recent weeks, there's been a deluge of information about Facebook and how it games its users to respond to ever more hostile and angry rhetoric. Now, it seems the more extreme the interactions, the more money that they could be making. That this fostered uncivil conversation and led to many, you know, Arun Thanksgiving is an absolute given. It's we all know it to be fact. But on a larger level, how much blame do you place on these platforms for how divided that we've become as a nation and the spread of lies and propaganda? You know, that's a really interesting question, because I'm really torn about this. I like the old school conservative that I am. I really put a lot of responsibility on individuals, right? I, I never liked it, for example, when people, you know, when we ask, why are Americans all, you know, obese and diabetic? Well, because they eat junk food all day. They go to Burger King, they go to Wendy's, they go to McDonald's. By the way, there's nothing wrong with Wendy's or McDonald's or any other place, um, you know, but you're not supposed to eat there all day, every day. And, you know, um, the, the, the reformers say, well, we have to shut down these places. We have to make them, you know, uh, put calorie counts. We can't Michael Bloomberg, right? You can't sell big gulps anymore. The thing is, if people want it, they'll find it. If they're going to, they're going to go there and they're going to eat that stuff because they like it. And I think that's part of the same problem with Facebook. You know, they go to Facebook because they want that jolt. They want that hit. They want that feeling of community and inclusion and feeling like they're revealing secrets and they're learning stuff. Now, that doesn't excuse Facebook Facebook for basically being like a a crack dealer that sells you, you know, pure and pure, you know, meth. Right. They're like Walter White selling you the blue meth. It just gets better and better and better. Um, but I still put the responsibility. Look, millions upon millions of people use Facebook every day without ever bo- ever falling down these rabbit holes. I, I guess I feel, you know, and I know this isn't going to be a popular answer, but I feel like if you go to Facebook looking for trouble and looking for this crazy shit, you'll find it because you want to. And if you can't get it on Facebook, you'll get it off of YouTube. And if you can't get it on YouTube, you're going to go to Reddit or you're going to go to the dark web or wherever you need to find it, because that's because you have the time and the inclination to do it. I I sometimes feel like the people that are arguing against um, uh, uh, arguing for greater regulation of Facebook. And I think there should be some regulation of Facebook, including breaking it up because it's just too big. Um, I, I still feel like they're the kind of people that say that say the way you handle the drug problem is that you put all the pushers in jail. The prop for me, the drug problem has always been on the end of the the, the demand side. 
the reason that there's a drug industry in America, you know, that there's a drug problem in America, is people like taking drugs. And if you don't want your brain poisoned by Facebook, don't sit on Facebook all afternoon. Um, but that's what people do, and they bring it on themselves. So I, I'm sort of torn about that. Yeah, you, you and I both. Um, first of all, I too believe that there has to be increased regulation of Facebook. I think that they are way too big, that they're way too powerful. They control too many uh, secondary and tertiary uh, apps like Instagram and so on. Right. And the thing right. is, if you type in anything, for example, into Google, somehow or another, Facebook picks up your Google. They're, they're data mining all of your information. They're selling it out there on the market. They also know that if hypothetically you type in you know, um, swastika. You are now going to be pushed to dozens of different chats, even if you were doing it for, let's say, a junior high school project, a book report, and you wanted to see what was on, you know, the, the sites just so that you could report it. You are now going to be bombarded for God knows how long with information regarding white supremacy. And this is part of the whole problem. And well, look, we know that Mark Zuckerberg changed the name. Now it's uh, it's not Facebook anymore as a parent company. It's now called Meta, right? Uh, which I don't see how that's going to change the issue here. But um, you're right. People have to figure out how to curb themselves. But you know, Tom, as we're winding down the hour, I have just one last question for you. Um, you cited an interesting article from the Financial Times today showcasing how Terry McAuliffe, in his run for governor, was hoping to run on a pro-Biden agenda, touting all the reform-minded legislation of the Democratic Party. Now, unfortunately, none of that has materialized yet, so McAuliffe has to run against Trump or the specter of Trump, which is able to mobilize the party like nobody else. I'm curious what you make of this scenario and the notion that the most potent weapon in the Democratic arsenal is not Biden, but Trump. And the idea that he may return to power or the people he supports may return to power. And how does this bode for our midterms? I know it's a lot to unpack, but there's a lot here going on. You know, if it, when people say, well, you know, the Democrats are just running on keeping Trump and his supporters out of power. Um, I don't have a problem with that. I mean, when you're if you're basically saying there are two parties in America, one of them is, you know, in favor of democracy and the other is in favor of authoritarianism. Um, you know, to me, that's a pretty simple choice. I I mean, I'm I am not on board with a lot of things the Democratic Party wants to do. I've always had a lot of gripes with the Democratic Party because for 30 years I was a Republican, 35 years I was a Republican. Um, but if my choice is between, um, you know, a bunch of um you know, people on the left who go from center left to progressive kooky left and a, a, basically a criminal gang of authoritarians following a caudillo and trying to institute a junta. Well, you know, I, I think it's perfectly OK for Democrats to run on that and to say, look, you're not going to like all our policies. But the one thing we're going to do is protect democracy and protect your right to vote and protect free and fair elections and the rule of law. And so I think, you know, the Democrats have made an error here by listening too much to, you know, the Twitter wing of their own party that says, well, you know, unless we get free eyeglasses and, you know, pre-K, um, maybe we shouldn't vote for Biden. Well, if I'm sorry, but if your alternative is Trump, um, then your policy differences really need to take a back seat. I, I will actually say that I think that the never Trumpers who defected from the conservative ranks, the people like me and 
um, you know, David French and you, you can name them all, you know, Wilson and um, all, all of the conservative never Trump guys that that, you know, when it came out against Trump in, in 2016, I think we were we were much better about this than the Democrats. We said, look, we're willing to put policy differences aside to save the Constitution. I just wish Democrats among themselves would be willing to put policy differences aside in order to save the Constitution. I don't think it would be a bad idea for Terry McAuliffe to say, look, if the alternative to me is a Trump stooge, that that should be enough um, for for most people, I, I, I think. Um, and but I think, you know, the Democrats have this unerring ability to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. Um, because they they just purity test each other into oblivion all the time. I mean, look, anybody who's been around Republican politics for any amount of time knows that the secret weapon of Republican politics was always to just step back and let the Democrats annihilate each other and then and then have piss each other off to the point where they have low turnout on their side so that you can, your guy wins almost by default. Um, I, I just hope that that's not the road the Democrats are going to go down now because I I think some of these, uh, honestly, I think some of the arguments among Democrats right now are are inane, and and it's okay to have inane political arguments in a in a more in a safer time, but not when democracy itself is is on the is on the ledge when democracy yeah, itself. I, is I, I I agree with you, but the only thing I would say is look, you know, Biden easily won Virginia, and so the notion that. You know, McAuliffe is struggling that this guy Yunkin could potentially win the governorship. The problem is that the Democrats that are running, right, they're just not they're not coming out strong enough. You have to remember, we're coming off of four. Actually, it's really more than that, six years because the two years run um, run up to the you know 2016 election. We watched a fucking animal. Right. Just beat down everything, roll over everything like a steamroller. And now it's like, I want to be, you know, I want to sit back. I want to grab a guitar. I want to, you know, put some incense in the ground and sing Kumbaya. It doesn't work that way because Trump, as I say all the time on this show, weaponized the Justice Department. He has taught people like Yunkin how to be divisive, how to be antagonistic, how to be fucking vile. And for some reason, people are confusing that vile rhetoric for um, toughness and for eagerness in order to fix problems. That's not going to happen. I don't think Yunkin wins, but I think the this is a real warning to Democrats for the midterms that they need to start getting tough. I'm very worried about the midterms. And I really, truly believe that the first thing that Biden needs to do, he needs to can Merrick Garland. He needs to put somebody in and they need to start opening up some investigations and let and let Democrats stop being so toothless. But, Tom, let me thank you for joining us. As I said, the hour runs by quick. Thank you so much. And I definitely hope to see you again uh, here on Maya Culpa. Thanks for having me, Michael. Be well, Tom. And now for today's Maya Culpa. In speaking with Tom Nichols, I am struck by the perilous state we have found ourselves because of a combination of democratic inaction, lack of resolve, and unwillingness to accept current political reality. If last week's election results were a wake-up call or a warning, it's my fear that we still have not learned anything. 
First and foremost is the ticking clock that has been put onto the January 6th committee as precious time has been squandered. And now we're looking at the possibility that Trump and his ilk will slither away for a third time unscathed because we lost the majority. And from there, everything will come unglued. The results in Virginia are a grave marker of political peril, says a recent Times op-ed. Virginia is a blue state. It hasn't been a battleground in years. Mr. Biden won there in 2020 by 10 points. A year later, the Democratic nominee for governor just lost by 2.5 percentage points, and Republicans flipped two other statewide offices, lieutenant governor and attorney general, that they have not won in 12 years. Virginia is a cross-section of suburbs, education levels, and racial diversity that is a mirror of what a winning coalition-driven Democratic Party should be. Democrats lost there, even with a longtime moderate as their candidate for governor, because the party has become distracted from crucial issues like the economy, inflation, ending the coronavirus pandemic, and restoring normalcy in schools, and isn't offering moderate, unifying solutions to them. It's a reminder that this country is not defined by its extremes, and that voters want broad bipartisan action. A leftward drift into the world of defunding the police and so-called wokeism has become anathema to voters who want Biden to govern from the middle. The alternative is too frightening to consider. Voters will punish the Democratic Party and give the GOP back its majority. And while Trump may be on the outside, you can fucking guarantee like a pig at the buffet table, he will push his way to the front and begin gorging himself. We must starve them now by denying them the opportunity. And thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Maya Culpa. Nothing but the truth. This is my man.